0: Before we read the uh, scripture passage this morning uh, concerning our message, the provision for Elijah, I want to just make a few preliminary comments. Think about today. We know today's date. But I want us to think about how this day is known and celebrated across America. And to think about that as a good example of the point of view that I've been presenting. Only a very small number of church people in this country Biblical Lutherans and Reformed actually know that this is Reformation Day. This is Reformation Sunday. Today celebrates the birthday of the Protestant Reformation, the return of the essential gospel truths and principles of what a true and saving faith happens to be: Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone in Christ alone, and all to the glory of God alone. But to the rest, today is Halloween. Uh, you know, dressing up in costumes. This evening, trick-or-treating, the candy fest with front porches now and front yard decorations rivaling anything that we might ever see during the Christmas season. But this makes the point. Culturally, this country is far more comfortable with Halloween, which allows for the celebration of dark themes, far more than genuine celebrations of Christmas and Easter which celebrate the light of the world. This is to say that the cultural point of view has shifted. We once had a culture that had a foundation that was biblically informed. We once had a culture and a government that was actually a co-agent in the cause of the gospel. We once had a public school system that honored the moral stance of the Ten Commandments, that presented the true history of the Thanksgiving celebration celebrated by the pilgrims that gave students a two-week Christmas break preceded by a Christmas program, uh, the singing of Christmas carols, and a nativity play. We had an Easter break for a week, graduation ceremonies that often began with a local pastor uh, giving a prayer in Jesus name. I know all of this because I experienced all of this uh, in the elementary school and junior high that I attended in the California public school system in the late 1950s and early 1960s. But today, we are thoroughly post Christian, postmodern, and pagan. We are a culture whose official educational system now rejects the true knowledge of the true God and promotes a veneration of the environment as sacred, which rejects the biblical understanding of human sexuality and its sacredness, while endorsing the LGBTQ plus agenda and its practices as those very things that restores justice and normativity to the sexually oppressed. Thus, the question of Psalm 11, verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? And to answer that question has really been the theme of this series. That even if paganism has eclipsed the influence of biblical truth in this age and in this culture, the call to all of us as believers is to remain faithful to the mission of who we are and what we are called to do. And this is our approach as we come to our study of Elijah and Elisha. And so this morning we're looking at 1 Kings 17, 1-9 once again. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Kireth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kireth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, Spirit of the living God, you who brought about the, the writing of the scriptures, your perfect and infallible word, we pray that you would give us great measure in terms of the illumination that you bring to believers to understand these things that are to be understood spiritually. And not in any sense bypassing the actual meaning of the word that you've given us, but taking us into the meaning and application that applies to us as those who've been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of the Lord Jesus to serve him faithfully in our lives. And so we would pray, grant us the understanding that would make us not simply hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Those who demonstrate and prove our faith by how we live. Those who have been blessed with the knowledge of your word and all spiritual wisdom and insight that we would walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord and that we might bear fruit in every good work, bringing glory to the name of Jesus. And that's what we pray for now as we open up this passage, that you might work this in us, the willing and doing of your good pleasure in Christ's name, amen. So we come again to this passage, which we have said can be outlined by these three major sections. Uh, The hiding of Elijah, the provision for Elijah, and then the future of Elijah. Now, last week, we looked at the hiding of Elijah. And next week, well, actually, the week after next, we'll look at the future of Elijah. Uh, But today, we are looking at the provision, the provision for Elijah, which we can see in terms of three particular things, Uh, three things really that ultimately are about God. God places... Or God proves, first of all, that he is the provider, the provider for his people. Secondly, God provides according to his promise. And then thirdly, God places his people in the position of dependency. Now, today I want us to consider this passage and what it says about the provision for Elijah. And in light of how we're treating this particular passage, but specifically Uh, Connected to what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4.19, where Paul says to the Philippians, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, what I want to propose to you is that there is a very natural connection between what's happening here in 1 Kings chapter 17, particularly verses 4, 5, and 6, And what Paul is teaching in Philippians 4.19. That on the one hand, uh, Elijah's story is an illustration of, on the other hand, this vital teaching of the Apostle Paul. And that together, we will see illustrated and didactically taught that which is most foundational to an understanding of true and saving faith. Which is to say... Today's theme is essentially this. God does what he does with us, for us, and to us, even in us. In order to require of our faith that we believe and trust that God is everything that he claims to be on behalf of those he saves. Now, I want you to Think through this complex statement. God does what he does with us, for us, to us, in us, because of a requirement that true and genuine faith would believe and trust that God is everything that he claims to be for all of those that he has redeemed. Now, this statement, this theme, incorporates the definitional Uh, descriptions we find of saving faith given in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 and then also verse 6, where the writer says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and then verse 6, and without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And it's important that we bring this biblical New Testament understanding of faith to our treatment of this text that is before us this morning, particularly verses four through six, which I'll read again. God says to Elijah, you shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kirith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now again, three things that this passage teaches us. God proves that he is the provider. God provides according to his promise. And God places his people in the position of utter dependency. Now, in the first place, the proof that God is the provider, that he's always about supplying the needs of his people, is something that we see presented very, very strongly in Scripture. Uh, first of all, uh, with respect to the Old Testament's picture of all of creation, and then more particularly, the Old Testament and New Testament's presentation of this very truth with respect to specifically the people of God. Now, what we see here is that our God and Elijah's God is frequently presented in Scripture as the one who provides for everything that he has created, for all of his creatures all of the time. And this begins, first of all, with God's provision with respect to nature, God's providing for nature, for all of the earth, for what we might call the whole food chain with respect to all of the world. And I want to principally reference Psalm 104 and what it has to say in this regard, but also a departing briefly to look at something from Psalm 145. So Psalm 104, verses 13 to 15. The psalmist uh, praying to God says this, From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Now, if you look at this carefully you realize that this is a celebration of the truth that all of God's creation is dependent upon the constant working of God. Now, For a moment, in Psalm 145, verses 15 to 16, speak of how that dependency concept is presented, and even personified. So there we read, verse 15, The eyes of the all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Now, coming back to Psalm 104, verses 20 and 22, We see that God satisfies the desires of every living thing. This even includes predators. So we read in Psalm 104, beginning at verse 20, You make darkness, and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises... They steal away and lie down in their dens. Then, continuing with Psalm 104, Scripture tells us that it's God's wisdom uh, that is the ultimate source and motivation for all that God has made, for which also God proves to be the provider. Out of God's wisdom, God proves to be the provider with respect to all of his creation. So, verses 24 to 29. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships in Leviathan, which you form to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Now, as a psalm of praise, the truth is stated about God as the creator and provider for all of his creation and for all of life and and this proves to be a substantial reason why God is to be worshiped. So the psalm concludes, verses 31 to 34. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the mountain or who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. May my meditation be pleasing to the Lord, for I rejoice in the Lord. Now, the teaching here is that we are called to worship God, to give him glory, because he's the sovereign provider for all of his creation. Now, this is perhaps the strongest claim that the Old Testament makes with some consistency against paganism and especially against Baal. It's God who does all of this, not the forces of nature, and specifically not Baal himself. But further, uh, scriptures tell us that God is particularly the provider for his people. So we note several aspects to what scripture tells us in this regard. First, God demonstrated and proved this at the time of the Exodus, In Psalm 105, moving on to this next historical psalm, in verse 40 to 42, we read that the Israelites asked, and he brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock and the water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river. So all throughout the 40 years in the desert, God provided daily for his people. But then also in the psalm, we see that the connection is to God's covenant. It was The constant help and provision from God, because God has remembered his covenant, it's all grounded in the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 42, for God remembered his holy promise, and Abraham his servant. So what God does in providing for his people is grounded in the promises that God has made, the covenant promise that God made, that the seed of Abraham would be specially and covenantally favored by him. Now, just like the manna that came to the Israelites in the wilderness day by day, so God promises Elijah that his provision is going to come day by day. Verse 6 in 1 Kings 17. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. God was keeping his promise to provide for Elijah's daily needs. Now, when we come to the New Testament, Jesus reinforces this truth about God. Listen to what he says to his disciples, which proves that God is the provider. God is the one who's attentive to and supplies the needs of his people. This would be Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on? Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, Jesus is telling his disciples, he's telling us, that we have a Heavenly Father who knows our need, who knows all about all of the basic necessities of life. Jesus says that we are to trust God as our provider, that we need to trust him and trust him for today and not be anxious actually about tomorrow. We are to trust him day by day. We are to trust him for this present day. It's why Jesus taught us in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Now, this is exactly the situation that God has put Elijah in. Elijah is to trust God as his provider, that each day God would be his provider and that it was not for him to worry that God might forget about him tomorrow. And the Apostle Paul teaches exactly the same. Restate Philippians 4.19 this way, as though Paul is saying it this way. My God who is Elijah's God, the God who is the Heavenly Father of the Lord Jesus, and our Heavenly Father too, he will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now, this is surely where biblical faith comes in. Hebrews 11, 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. None of us can see tomorrow. And therefore, it is true faith, true trust, to possess the assurance that we have what we hope for, that God will be our provider, just as he has promised, that this will always prove true. And further, this faith, this kind of faith, this, this nature of faith, is most necessary for our relationship with God. Because in verse 6 we read, Without faith, this kind of faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So, God has said in Scripture, God proves by what he's done with men such as Elijah and the disciples of the Lord Jesus and with us. God proves that he is the provider. He truly supplies the needs of his people. Then secondly, uh, considering again, What Elijah was learning and what we should observe about Elijah's life uh, there by the brook Kareth is this. God provides according to his promise, which is to say that his supply meets those needs day by day. Now, that's the message that God has for Elijah as he sends him across the Jordan River uh, to hide near the, the brook Kareth. God promises to feed him daily at morning and evening intervals and god places by him this water supply that he can quench his daily thirst now i want us to think in the midst of this about god's provision how when we look at how god dealt with elijah we can think about ordinary and extraordinary means and manners that is to say there is that which often is referred to as ordinary means by theologians and that which is often referred to as extraordinary means. And that distinction is helpful to understand a kind of wisdom in the Christian life that avoids a kind of foolishness that many Christians have followed far too often in the history of the church. Let me illustrate the problem. First of all, during my Jesus people days, you know, back in the Jesus movement days, during my college days, uh, I met and fellowshiped with a fair number of believers who were enthusiastically involved in Bible studies and church movements that were fully into the so-called signs and wonders and the spectacular gifts of the Holy Spirit, you know, tongues and prophecy and healings and words of knowledge and words of wisdom. Uh, these things that were frequently uh, uh, given to lead believers in very specific ways with respect to God's will and their lives. So let me mention just two stories about these supposed miraculous leadings. So one of my charismatic friends told me about a young woman, I guess it was uh, in her fellowship, a very godly young woman uh, who always sought a word from the Lord about what she was supposed to wear each day. But to say, she would never choose her socks or her pants or her blouse or her sweater without specifically asking God for his will for how she should dress that day. And she claimed that God would always direct her by a word of knowledge or a word of wisdom uh, so that she could walk in God's will and how she dressed that day. Now, if if you sort of laugh, um, I can understand that. Seems a little bit silly. But think about something far more seriously associated with the signs and wonders kind of movement. So I had a fellow college student, again, one of my friends. Uh, I was in a, uh, a threesome of a prayer meeting with her um, every week, all during my sophomore year in college. And she shared with us, myself and this other fellow, she shared that in her fellowship, she had received a word of knowledge about her future spouse. A very specific word of knowledge that pointed specifically to a young man in her church fellowship. This was the man, according to the word of knowledge, that God intended for her to marry. So, uh, without any antagonism on my part, uh, I had a few curious questions, questions of curiosity. And so I asked her, well, what does he think about this? And she said, Well, she was waiting on the Lord until he received this word of knowledge, too. Well, that just sparked further questions of curiosity about, well, how well do you know him? She admitted that she hardly knew him at all. She said, we're not really friends, but he seems nice. And she thought he was cute. And her posture was this. She was simply going to trust God because God had given her this word of knowledge, this revelation of God's provision for her. Now, you and I would would say and recognize that this this seems to just totally bypass the ordinary ways that God leads godly Christians to make very momentous and serious decisions. I mean, we would say, properly so, the the book of Proverbs is dedicated to godly wisdom. And the book of Proverbs is all about human relationships. It says a great deal about decision-making. It never says to wait upon special revelation from God. It points in another direction. It points to the ordinary means by which God gives us guidance and direction and wisdom. Now, sadly for this Young friend of mine, from her point of view, that word of knowledge never came to that young man, and that was a crushing, crushing development in her life. But the point is, uh, she had been taught that the walk of faith meant that God would supply her big needs in these extraordinary ways, that God would bypass the ordinary ways that you know non-Christians have to go about doing business in this world, but. Christians, in contrast, could pray and get answers from God in these very miraculous ways outside of all the ordinary uh, means of learning and practicing wisdom. Now, I hope that story will help you to understand something about the distinction between what we mean by ordinary means and what we mean by extraordinary means as we look at God's provision for Elijah. And here we see a combination of the ordinary and the extraordinary manner and the means in which God provided for him. So the ordinary would, in fact, be this water supply from the brook. You know, before the drought, God had sent rain to the eastern side of the Jordan, up into the mountains. The rain had watered the hills and the mountains. They had filled up the underground aquifers, which were the source of all the springs that actually uh, flowed into the brook Kirith. So that even after months of the drought continuing, uh, the aquifers still could source The springs. There was still water to flow into the brook. And that's how God provided for Elijah. He did it by the ordinary means by which God seasonally waters the land in the Middle East. And yet, we've already read, scripture tells us to see this as God's handiwork. But let's pause for a moment. God clearly provided the water. But still, Elijah had to go to the brook and drink. Now, it's likely they had a cup or something. But if not, any of who's actually camped near actual spring-fed brooks, you know, uncontaminated water, we can picture how Elijah quenched his thirst each day. But then consider the extraordinary. The ravens are the extraordinary means of God's provision. They are ordinary birds that are drafted by God to behave in this extraordinary manner. You know, they depart from their usual behavior of scavenging for their own food, and in some manner, which scripture doesn't really specify, they secure meat that is cooked and edible for a Jew to eat, as well as bread that is baked and likewise ready to eat, and they bring him his meals twice a day. God makes these ravens his divine caterers. Now, in this extraordinary means, God's sovereignty is revealed to Elijah in a very practical, very specific manner. The birds do what God commands them to do. But even in this, Elijah still has to do the eating. His body still has to process the food in order to do what food ordinarily does. And that's according to God's ordinary means of of having food provide the proteins and the fats and the carbohydrates and the vitamins that nourish the physical body. Now, out of this, we should make some observations about how God provides. Whether we see ordinary means or extraordinary means, both are the handiwork of God. God is equally active in both. God just as much credits, the Bible just as much credits God with the ordinary activities of nature and the regularities of the natural processes as it does these out-of-the-ordinary acts that God sometimes happens to do. Or to look at it this way. Elijah had to fetch his own water while the ravens fetched his bread and meat. Yet in either case, God was the provider in every way getting the nourishment to Elijah and making that nourishment actually work in his body. Secondly, what we see from this is that God provides according to his promises, according to the truth of his word. So with Elijah, God had promised Elijah that he would feed him daily. But then also so with all humanity. You know, the post-flood covenant in Genesis 8.22 says, God declares, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. And so also with his people. God has declared through the Apostle Paul, My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But the way that God provides for our needs always involves something like this. There is always something for us to do. If God provides water for you in a season of drought, you still must go to the brook and drink. And if God gives ra- sends ravens to bring you bread and meat, still, you have to pick up and eat. If God has declared that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good, which God has prepared in advance for us to walk in them, then we must still do the walking. We must still be intentional intentional about what God is doing in and through us. And this pertains to the meaning of our faith. As we note in the theme of this message, God does what he does with us, for us, and to us in order to require of our faith that we believe and trust that God is everything that he claims to be on behalf of those he saves and such faith in such a God must act. If we believe that we are God's workmanship, then we must also believe that he's prepared good works for us to do and in order to do those good works, we must act on the belief that God will provide for us according to his promise that he's going to supply our needs day by day. Now, God proves that he is the provider and God provides according to his promise. We now come to the third important lesson about God's provision for Elijah, and it's this. God places his people in the position of dependency. Their dependency upon God is their testimony, their evidence of a true and saving faith. Now, I think this is a clear observation we see about Elijah. God places him in a a position of daily and evident dependence upon God's provision. It is evident that Elijah trusts and believes and rests in God's promises to always be faithful, to always provide. By going where God sends him, under the conditions under which God states and promises, Elijah's obedience to God's command, it proves the nature of Elijah's faith. Elijah's faith is such that he is totally dependent upon God. Elijah lives by faith in this dependent relationship with God. And in this dependency, Elijah is illustrating the true nature of the faith that saves and justifies. Faith, again, as defined in Hebrews 11, because once again, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Forever draw near to God must believe that he is that he rewards those who diligently seek him. And these statements correspond perfectly to the faith of Elijah. But these statements must likewise be true for all of us who would place our faith truthfully in God through Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that with me. That faith in its deepest sense is utter dependency on God. Utter dependency upon God and what he's done for us. First of all, for instance, we are utterly dependent on the saving work of Christ on the cross. We have no forgiveness apart from the shed blood of Jesus. We have no eternal life except through Christ as our propitiation in his own blood for our sins. We are utterly dependent on this once-for-all sacrifice for the work of Christ. And our faith is the assurance of this forgiveness that we hope for. It's the conviction of a place secured for us in heaven which we cannot see. We are also utterly dependent upon the intercessory work of Christ at the Father's right hand. We are dependent on that only mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We are dependent on that high priest who holds a permanent priesthood, who continues forever in that priesthood, and, quoting Hebrews 7, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. And then thirdly, we are dependent on the life-giving work of Christ in his union and communion with us. Where Jesus is the vine and we are the branches. And we are utterly dependent upon Christ in order to bear any fruit at all. In order to bear any fruit that would bring any glory to the Father. For Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. That brings us again to Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. When Paul says God's riches in glory in Christ Jesus, he means this treasury of the work of Christ that saves sinners. This is God's storehouse from which God draws his provision to supply our needs. Every need we have, every ordinary daily need, every once in a while need, every extraordinary need, every need God will supply for those who, by faith, are dependent upon Christ. So in summary, we have been looking at this provision for Elijah, where God proves that he is the provider, and God provides according to his promise, and God places us, his people, in the position of an utter dependency upon him. All of this to say, once again, that God does what he does with us, and for us, and to us, and in us, in order to require of our faith that we truly believe and trust that God is everything that he claims to be on behalf of those he saves. And the faith that believes and trusts that God is our provider is a faith that lives in dependence upon God. Now, to know this and to live this is to experience what David says in Psalm 34, verses eight and 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer one and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. For without faith, It is impossible to please God, but those who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And the reward of those who diligently seek him is this. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our God and Father, take us into the place where we believe you more seriously, trust you more deeply, and believe with Elijah and the Apostle Paul and our Savior, the Lord Jesus, that you will supply all of our needs according to your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Father, deepen our faith in this way, so that when we come to you, uh, diligently seeking you, we believe that you are the rewarder of us who seek you in this way, so that we would be those who would be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make our request known to you. And then to know that the peace, your peace, that surpasses all understanding would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so we pray. Deepen our faith that we would walk in a manner that's pleasing to you. That we might bear fruit in every good work And that we would grow in our knowledge of you. The God who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For you have delivered us out of the domain of darkness. And you have transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son. In whom we have redemption. And the forgiveness of our sins. In the name of your beloved son Jesus. Amen.